Hallelujah. Well, can we give Jesus a hand of praise? He's the one that really deserves it. Let's do a little bit better than that for Jesus. He, King of kings and Lord of lords, amen. Amen. It is such an honor and such a privilege to be back here at Northridge. I consider this as family. And to Brad and to all of the leadership, um, we just appreciate so much the uh, relationship that uh, both myself uh, and my wife uh, that we have with this ministry, but definitely with Citadel of Faith and our church in Detroit as well. I'm just glad to be back, glad to be back home and to be a part of this amazing fellowship. So we invite you into what God's going to say this morning. Let's pray as we approach the word together. God, we thank you for the worship that's been lifted. We thank you for the hallelujahs that have been sung. Uh, Father, we are mindful of your word, which is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path that we do not stumble in the darkness. For someone who came in this afternoon, God, uh, uh, today who's really dealing with the issues of life, God, we pray that your word would be an answer to them. Your words are spirit and life. And so would your word do in our hearts only what it can do. And Father, when it's all over, we won't give glory to any preacher or to any church. We'll give glory where it belongs. We'll give it to you, Jesus. And it's in that wonderful name that we pray, in the matchless name of Jesus. And we all said amen and amen. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 7. 2 Corinthians 12 and 7, I'll be reading from the New International Version. It may read a little differently than maybe your translation, but 2 Corinthians 12 and 7. It says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Verse 10 again. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Last night and at the earlier service, I gave a challenge for people to turn to their neighbor and help me announce the subject of the message. And they did pretty well, and the last service really did really well. Uh, but I believe you're the smartest of all of the groups uh, that come here. So I'm expecting everybody to really be able to do this. So you're getting ready to turn to someone next to you or near you, and you're going to help me announce the subject of the message today. So turn to your neighbor and say these words to your neighbor. Say, neighbor... Did you know that God has unforgettable grace? Now turn to the person on the other side and say, excuse me. You look like you know that God has unforgettable grace. You guys move to the head of the class. You're the smartest of the group. 
unforgettable grace. The Christian journey is an amazing one, you all, because when we begin the journey, we're reminded of the promises that God gives us for the journey. He promises that those who know him and choose to follow him will live a life full of joy. He says, joy unspeakable and full of glory. He says that he actually promises the believer abundant life. He says, I come that you might have life and that you would indeed have that life more abundantly. So the Christian begins his or her journey with, with the thoughts of their Christian life, the days, the weeks, the months, the even years, to be filled with bliss to be filled with joy unspeakable, indeed to be filled with God's unbelievable mercy and grace and all of the blessings that he promises to, to accompany the journey. But most of us, just like with any other thing that starts out a certain way, realizes that the Christian journey can be filled with difficulty. It can be filled with adversity. It can be filled with trouble. No matter where we are, no matter what your background, no matter how much you love God and have given yourself to his cause, every single one of us, we are a candidate for trouble. As a matter of fact, Jesus says this himself uh, in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, in the world, you will have trials and tribulations. You will have trouble. But he says, you know, be of good cheer. I've overcome it. But, but in the world, you will have trouble. Trouble is what every one of us can expect. As a matter of fact, there, there are three categories that everyone in this building falls in. You're either in the middle of trouble right now, you either have just come out of trouble, or guess what? You're on your way to it. Every one of us is a candidate for trouble because we live in a fallen world. Because we live in a world that has been uh, gripped by sin, and because of that, you all, we live in a life that is full of adversity, full of hardship. And as much as we love Christ, and as much as we love our devotion for him increases probably more and more every day, as much as that is true, it is still a life often filled with adversity and conflict. Paul shares in the earlier chapter, chapter 11, he talks about a little bit of his, his background. He says that I was one who was a Jew above all Jews. I did all that was required of me as far as the Jewish law and the Jewish code was concerned, and I lived my life accordingly. As a matter of fact, he had such passion about his Judaic code and belief that he felt like this fledgling group of people called the church, that they were a threat to what his, his convictions were. So he actually went on a mission to persecute Christians. And part of his journey uh, one day was to go and persecute some more Christians, and he encounters Jesus on this road to Damascus. And in this conversion, he literally had a life change where he realizes that he could no longer go on persecuting the church, but now he became one of the greatest leaders in the church. And so now Saul, the persecutor of the church, becomes what we now know as Paul the Apostle. And because of his obedience and because of his turnaround, there were many that did not like the fact that he was doing such an awesome job communicating the gospel of Christ. He was oftentimes imprisoned. And he speaks of that in chapter 11. He says he was often beaten almost to the point of death. There were times that he was literally shipwrecked, wondering whether or not he would survive the, the tumultuous storms of the sea as he was hoping that he would find the shore and find safety. So from one situation to the next to the next, he found himself with adversity after adversity after adversity. 
And if the truth be told, most Christians that are in the room, we've learned how to put on the face of everything is okay. Someone sees you in the hallway on your way in and say, good morning, how are you? And you learn to say, hey, how are you? I'm doing great. And so on the outside, we're able to portray that things are well. But if the truth be told, every one of us in the room is in the middle of some kind of struggle, some kind of adversity, some kind of difficulty. Paul was acquainted with this, and he shares about his struggles. But then he opens up chapter 12, going in another direction, speaking about something that occurred about 14 years ago as he was caught up into what he calls the third heaven. And then God begins to reveal things to him and show him things that were amazing. And for 14 years, he keeps all of these things a secret, holds them close to his chest, close to his heart, remembering the revelations that God had given to him about himself. And the Bible says that because God knew something about the character of Paul, he said to keep me from being conceited. Because of the amount of revelations that I received. Isn't that amazing? That God knew something about the proclivity and the the nature of Paul to become conceited. That God wanted to ensure that he would not be conceited. Every last one of us, there's something in us that lends towards our conceit. Our belief that we're all of that. Some of you came in the room today and you really think that you're the most beautiful person here. You really do. I mean, you, you, you really you believe everyone else is just okay, but you believe that you are the most beautiful person that has ever been created by God. And you, you, you let everyone know this in the way that you, you move your hair. You move it strategically. Brothers, you've been working out during the winter months, and now you want all of us to know that you've been working out. So you wear shirts that are two sizes too small. So you can let everybody know that you've been working out and you're, you know, flexing your muscles. You're letting us know that you're all of that. And so some of us rely on our physical appearance and we find our safety and our identity and our sometimes conceit and how we look. Others will find uh, their confidence and sometimes, unfortunately, conceit in their achievements academically. So because of all that you've attained academically, your wall is filled with degree after degree after achievement. There's more plaques on the wall than there is wall to hold them. Others of us will find ourselves uh, content with what we've done in the marketplace. And because of your climbing the ladder, you've been able to achieve great things. You've got a corner office with windows and a view other than the parking lot. And therefore, you really feel as though you've achieved great things because of your marketplace attainment. But then there are others of us that even in our Christian journey, we feel like we've kind of graduated. We're not elementary any longer. We now know some scriptures. We now are part of a small group. We listen to Jars of Clay, and we listen to Kirk Franklin. We've really arrived. And so there's some of us, you all, that because of this proclivity towards, listen, this proclivity, this tendency towards conceit, God, in his love for us, allows some things to happen so that we are humbled. Look what it says in the text here. It says in verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Look what it says. Because God knew the nature of Paul to become conceited because of what God had blessed him with, 
God allowed something to be given to him that was painful to him. He said that God sent him a thorn in the flesh. Listen, a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. Doesn't that seem confusing that the God of love and the God of mercy and the God of grace would then send something that was not as favorable to someone that he loves? How is it that God who loves Paul would allow Paul to have something that was tormenting to him? But the Bible says because of his tendency towards being conceited, God allowed there to be a thorn in the flesh. Listen, a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. Why? To keep him humble. I wonder how many of us are going through adversities today, difficulties, situations that we cannot control, and we think that it's because God does not love us. We think it's because God does not care about us. I submit that that's a very different reason that he has. Maybe he's allowing the adversity. Listen, he is allowing the adversity not because he doesn't love you, not because he doesn't care about you, but because he knows the proclivity for humankind to think that we're in control of it all. So maybe there are some things that are happening that you cannot control that bring you and me to our knees in prayer, realizing that only God can change this situation. Maybe it's that God loves us enough to not let us think that we've got this. The Bible says that he sends a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn of the flesh is. Commentators have argued through the, the years about what this could be. Nobody knows, and I'm glad that God did not specify what the thorn is. He allowed it to be left blank. We don't know if it was a physical issue. We don't know if it was an emotional one. We don't know if it was a societal one. All we know is that whatever this was, it wasn't good. It was tormenting. And watch this. It was a messenger of Satan. It was something that the Lord allowed Satan to do. And let me just kind of pause for a moment and say this. I often hear people talking about the devil is in one hand and corner and God is in the other corner and the devil's fighting God and they're on equal standing. There is no equal standing. The devil is a defeated foe. He's a fallen angel and Jesus and God is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There is no comparison. There is no comparison. And so there's nothing that the enemy of Christ, there's nothing that Satan can do to us that God does not allow him to do. There's nothing that he has power over you to do other than what God allows him to do. And so if you're going through adversity today and you're dealing with something that is greater than what you can handle, realize that if it's there, and if this is something that is tormenting you and something that the enemy is behind, realize that it's there because God has allowed it to be there. The devil does not have permission to do anything other than what God will allow him to do. Now, let me just clarify what the thorn is not. The thorn is not stuff that's our mess. Some people like to call their mess a thorn. And you know that, you know, if you have a little problem with eating and you're eating too much, uh, you can't come against the spirit of calories. <laughs> you can't, you can't, you know, I command these calories in this cheesecake. 
You know, you eat the cheesecake, you deal with the consequence of cheesecake, you know. Uh, some, Some of the things that we are encountering in our life, listen, some of the adversities that we're dealing with are self-inflicted. Some of the stuff that we're dealing with has has been because we've caused that. But what about the things that are happening that we did not cause? What about when you're here today and you're in the midst of a marriage that is no longer what it should be? And you're in a strained relationship and you're wondering whether or not you will ever repair this broken trust, this broken relationship between you and your spouse? What about you and your children and your children that were once bundling joys in your arm. Now they're Chucky Seed and the Exorcist and the Omen all wrapped up into one. And you're trying to deal with these teenagers and you're wondering what planet did they arrive from? What happens when you get a doctor's report that is not favorable and there is no seemingly quick solution for what they're telling you in your ear? What happens when you're downsized at work and now you get the pink slip or maybe you've already gotten it and you've lost your job what happens when you realize that you have to reinvent yourself and retool yourself this late in the game and now to become relevant in this quickly changing society you've got to figure out at age 50 how to go back to school No matter what the scenario is, no matter what the adversity is, I'm talking about things that are in your life that are a thorn in the flesh that you cannot control. But can I say this? And I feel like preaching. By the way, I'm black. Did you know that? I just thought I'd let you know because you may not have known. It's important for me to let you know these things up front. And part of my cultural expression as a black person is that when we preach and things make sense, people say amen back to me when... And, and, and when they don't, I assume that they didn't get it, so I repeat myself over and over and over. Somebody said, amen, praise God, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. I got it all. All right. And so all of y'all get to be black for the next uh, 15 minutes. All right. So, so as many amens as you can get in, you get them out. All right. So what happens is God, in his knowledge of us, knows that we have the tendency to stray away from him and the tendency to rely on ourselves and to become conceited because of the blessings that he allows in our lives. But he allows us sometimes through adversity to keep us humble, to keep us prayerful. And for some of us, we would not even be in church this hot day had it not been for the trouble in your life. But let me just say this. I'm grateful for the people who are in trouble but still have enough sense to give God praise even though you're in the midst of trouble. Oh, I feel like preaching. I wonder, is there anybody here that even though you are going through a difficult time in your life, you still know that God is worthy of the glory, he's worthy of the praise, and he's worthy of the honor. Even though I'm hurting, he's still worthy. Is there anybody that knows that? Even though I'm wounded, he's still worthy. Can we just for about 10 seconds give God a praise for being worthy? Five more seconds. He's worthy. He's holy. He's righteous. He's loving. He's kind. 
He's merciful. He's a father. He's a lover. He's the one that redeemed us. He's our savior. He's our king. He's our God. He's our redeemer. Is there anybody here that loves my Jesus? Give him a praise. Hallelujah. 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 You may be seated. It takes a real believer in the midst of adversity to still lift a hallelujah. In the midst of pain, in the midst of things not being right, to still say God is still worthy of the glory. And so Paul realizes that this thorn in the flesh is painful and it's difficult, but God had a greater cause for it. Because the, the tendency for his conceit was so strong that God had to bring him down to size and remind him of who's really in charge. Look at the next thing that he does, that Paul does. Three times, look at the next verse, verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. I cannot think of anybody who had a stronger prayer life than that of Paul. Paul wrote the bulk of the New Testament. He's one of the most theologically sound guys that we know. I'm sure that his prayers were biblically correct. He was not praying an improper prayer. But what happens when we pray a prayer and we get an answer that we don't like? What happens when we pray a prayer and the response is not the response that we want? Not just once, not just twice, but three times he prays, and in the Greek it gives the, 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 the connotation that he pleads, he begs God, take this away from me. And I wonder how many of us have ever gotten to that place in prayer where we beg God, make this right, fix this, intervene on my behalf. And then I want you to see what God says in response. Look at God's unforgettable response. Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Now look up this way because I believe most of us, we have church ears. And so we hear something like that and we hear it in a very spiritually sounding way. And three times I beseech the Lord that he would, that he wouldest because you know when you, you speak in the King James, that's more spiritual when you speak in the King James Version, that he wouldest remove this thorn in my flesh. But he responds, my grace is sufficient for thee. Now listen, y'all. If I was Paul, I would say, I didn't ask you for your grace. I ask you to take the thorn out of my flesh. Maybe the tweet got misinterpreted by the time it got to heaven. But let me help you understand. I'm asking you to make my marriage right. I'm saying I need to get my job secure. I need to get the cancer out. And you come back and tell me my grace is sufficient for you. I do not want sufficient grace. I want the removal of the cancer. I want my exorcist children to be delivered. 
Now listen, most of us don't want to get real about that, but some of us, honestly speaking, when we pray to God and we ask him to do stuff and he comes back with a real cute answer, like my grace is good enough, we're like, it ain't that good. What happens when God's response is not the response that we want? What happens when God's reply is not the reply that we desire? Paul begged God, remove this. Reminds me of someone else in the garden of Gethsemane who prayed a similar prayer. Jesus said, God, if it is possible that this cup that I'm about to drink which is going to symbolize my separation from you, one that I've been with since there's been. Could you allow this cup to pass from me? But he said, nevertheless, not what I want, not my will, but thy will be done. I wonder, what has God given to you? What cup has he given for you to drink? What adversity, watch this, it's going to sound strange. The language is going to sound awkward. What adversity has he trusted you with? What situation that is beyond your ability to solve has he trusted you to hold? And I wonder what is that response back to him? Is it God, I don't want it and I don't want you because you won't solve it? Would it be, God, that maybe in this grace that you're providing to me, there's something about grace that I may not understand? Look what he says here in the second part of this response. My grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my power is made perfect in weakness. This is an amazing point, you all, because God says in my kingdom... There's a different way that I view strength. In your kingdom, you view strength by what you can do. You view strength by what you have and what you possess and what you're able to muster up with your own ability. But guess what? In my kingdom, we view or God views strength based on humanity's awareness that they don't have strength. That it's not in our strength that God's strength is made perfect, but it is indeed in our weakness that God's strength is made perfect. There's a perfect example of this that most of us are familiar with. How many of y'all have ever heard of the Ten Commandments? Yeah, you, don't, you do know that those are not ten suggestions, right? There were not ten requests. There were not ten suppositions. There were ten commandments. God says, I'm holy, I'm pure, I'm righteous. And for mankind to coexist with me, to fellowship with me, then I need them to obey every one of the things that I command that they do. Have you ever read them? I get depressed at the first one. I'm disqualified at number one. I mean, can you imagine not putting anything before God ever? Can you imagine never lying about anything ever? Can you imagine never being jealous or wanting to have something that doesn't belong to you? I mean, listen, if we had to obey those commandments to please God, we would all just say, it's a, it's, it's a wrap. I'm done. Because, listen, with the introduction of God's commandments, 
came man's realization of his and her inability to do them. And so with the law came guilt. With the introduction of the law came guilt because we were incapable of doing what God required. But God did it this way because he wanted us to realize that everything that man has to do to please God cannot be done without God. It takes God to please God. (laughs) And so God sends his son, Jesus. And when Jesus comes, comes, he obeys every single commandment, lives every single law to its completion in a way that honors and reverences God. But then when he leaves, he says, I'm not going to leave you comfortless, church, but I'm going to give you one just like myself who will now live on the inside of you. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will now take his occupancy and residency on the inside of you so that you who could not obey God will now be able to obey God, not by your volition, but by God's work in you. That is why it is no longer I, but Christ that lives in me, that enables me to do what I could not do without him. We cannot please God without realizing our weakness because it is in our weakness that his strength is made perfect. It is in your inability that God's ability is made perfect. It's when you realize that you can't that you surrender to what he can do. It is in that place where you no longer have the strength to solve the problem that you now release and you rely on him to take care of the situation. Now listen, you all, I believe that there is a revelation in this today that will change your life, this response. And the response that God gives to him is this. Your weakness is actually a gift because it is in that place of weakness that God will show up the most. It is in the place where you feel as though it's all over and it's all done and they've already written the end of the chapter and the end of the story. That's where God shows up. It is in the place of impossibility that God shows up. Why? So that when he shows up, you know that you could not claim credit for what he's getting ready to do. As a matter of fact, God has so arranged your situation that when, notice what I said, not if, when you come out of what you're coming out of, you cannot put your fingerprints anywhere on the deliverance because you will know that it was God that brought me out of this. I wonder, do I have a witness in the room? Is there anybody that God has ever brought you out of something and you know that it was God? Do I have any witnesses in the room of something that God did that nobody could have done it, but God. Tell somebody next to you, I thank God. Now I got six minutes and 57 seconds. Some of
of us are in the midst of a valley today, and you walked into this sanctuary out of obedience to God. You came with a broken heart. You came with a broken spirit. There are situations that are unbelievable in your life right now. And if the person next to you had any clue of what you're shouldering, they would pray for you. If they had any idea of the pressure that you're carrying, they had any idea of the weight that is upon you, they would marvel at the fact that you even decided to come to church today, but you did. But here's the reminder. It's not in your strength that God shows up, but it's in the place of weakness that you realize that that is where God wants you to be, that your de dependence would not be on your ability but his. So what is Paul's response to God's response? Look what it says. Verse 9, the end of it. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Look what he says. I will boast about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Verse 10, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecutions. I delight in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Listen, you all, I used to have a, a confusion in my head about an Old Testament passage of Scripture that I never really understood. And it's found in the book of Joel, Joel chapter 3, verse 10. And it says these words. Let the weak say, I am strong. I said, now that sounds like God is asking me to lie. Because he said, let the weak. That means that we acknowledge the fact that a weak person is weak because it says, let the weak. Now, if I was strong, he would say, let the strong. But he said, let the weak say, I'm strong. Why wouldn't he say, let the weak say, I'm weak? Because the weak is weak because they're called weak. Why would he say to a weak person, say you're strong? Because there is something in God's kingdom that translates weakness to strength. And he says, let those who are weak in their own ability and their own sufficiency realize my ability and my sufficiency and let the weak in their condition claim strength in their position. That means that even though your circumstance may say that you are weak in Christ, you are strong. I don't know who I'm talking to today, but I'm reminded of a text in Psalms that says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for God is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. Guess what? That means that even though you're in the valley, that's not your crib. Some of us, some of us have gotten in the valley, and while in the valley, we've decided to make a campfire, get a tent, and make that our crib. Guess what, baby? The valley is not your crib. Yay, though I walk through the valley. I might be in the valley, but I'm... I'm walking through the valley, and I'm not walking by myself. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and
dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. You're coming out of this. You're coming out of this. Stand on your feet if you're able to do it. If you're able to stand on your feet, would you do it? In the two minutes we got, I want us to pray a prayer. Because some of us are in the midst of some unbelievably challenging situations. And God knew what you needed to hear. He knew what you had to hear. Sometimes God does not deliver you from it, but he delivers you through it. Did you hear that? Sometimes he doesn't take you out of the fiery furnace, but he delivers you in it. And so for some of us that are praying that God would remove the thorn, he's saying, no, my grace is sufficient for in your inability, there's my ability. And so in Jesus' name, as we pray this prayer, I pray that depression would be lifted. I pray that someone that is even thinking about doing something that you should not do, that now that would be thwarted and stopped. For someone who feels hopeless, that now hope would spring alive again. Somebody said, did you hear about Detroit being bankrupt? I said, good. Because now God can really get ready to show out. I See, listen, can I just say this one thing? When you get down to the bottom, ain't nowhere else but up. And for somebody, you've hit so low that the only place you can go now is up. And so we honor God. Let's pray together. Father, for every soul that is standing, for maybe the person who might be infirmed in their body, not able to physically stand, thank you. But Father, I pray now for every person in this church who struggles with the thorn in the flesh and an unforgettable response from you that your grace is sufficient because it is in that weakness that your strength is going to be made perfect. And Father, as your eye is on the sparrow, as your eye is on all of creation, we know that you watch over us. There's nothing in our lives that you don't see and that you're not able to solve. And so, Father, as we leave this place, we leave with renewed hope and renewed faith that even though the thorn exists, there is an unforgettable response that your grace is more than sufficient for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Maybe you're here today and you have not asked Jesus into your life. And our prayer for you is that you don't leave this place without a relationship with Jesus, that you ask him into your life. And inside of your bulletin today, there is a connection card right here. And if you would let us know that you made a decision to follow him, just check the little box here and fill out some information Someone from our team wants to reach out to you just to connect with you, to pray with you, and to pray for you. Find out if there's any way that we can serve you. There are boxes all over the campus that you can just take this off and just, you know, deposit it in there. But that's our greatest prayer for you is that you would remember that. 
And as we leave today, there's a song in my soul and spirit that has guided my heart during those times where I wondered whether God was present. And it's a reminder of the scripture that says if he can care for the birds and the lilies of the field and how they're adorned, how much more will he care for his children? If his eye is on the sparrow, then I know that he watches over me. Unforgettable grace.